Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sidney Wildsmith. There's a lot of buzz on the street that bees are just plain disappearing. We're off to Georgia to find out what all the buzz, or lack thereof, is all about, and the very real consequences it may have on us all, when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. There's a lot of things in life that we take for granted that we should pay more attention to, but one that we probably don't pay that much attention to are bees. We Only if they kind of are in our face do we pay much attention to them. I was playing tennis the other day, and there was a dying bee on the tennis court, and I thought, geez, I wonder what I should do with the bee. But anyways, I don't think about bees all that much. But bees are suddenly appearing in the news, a bit of a buzz in the news, as a matter of fact, about bees, because, first of all, they carry such a a tremendous responsibility in providing us so much of our food in terms of what they do, but as well, there's now an emerging story that says that a lot of the bee population is disappearing, and to help us understand, uh, first of all, the role of bees and also what's happening is the Executive Director of the American Beekeeping Federation, Troy Four. He's talking to us from Georgia. Troy, welcome to the Wild Side News. You're welcome. Thank you. Have you been a beekeeper yourself? I have to imagine you were. I, I grew up in beekeeping. My father was a beekeeper, and then about um, 15 years ago, I became executive director of the American Beekeeping Federation, so most, I spend my time pretty much doing this now. Bees play an enormous role in our culture and actually our, our life, and yet a lot of people don't know about that. Why don't you explain the really significant relationship of bees to our to our life? Well, of course, the reason we have bees uh, is to pollinate uh, plants blooms and, and generally you think of, uh, of food plants uh, everything is as I say from uh, almonds to zucchini it's been said that honeybees uh, contribute uh, their pollination through their pollination they contribute one third of our diet so they say every third spoonful that you eat theoretically is, is a honeybee is responsible for that well, as, as, as part of that then would be, if we look around the nation, are there areas where there's more bees than others? Uh, yes. When I, when I first got into beekeeping, the, of course, the driving factor was uh, honey production, and to a large extent, for many beekeepers, it still is. But So beekeepers congregated in areas where they could produce big crops of honey. And a given beehive in a good area like this will produce, you know, on average, 100 and 100, 125, 150 pounds of honey, depending on the year. Mostly that depends on the weather. But now over the, the my lifetime in bees, my career, there's been a continuing uh, emphasis more on uh, use of bees for pollination. And now it's uh, largely due to the almond crop in California. Beekeepers are, many more beekeepers are more involved in pollination than they were earlier. And for many, pollination is the largest part of their income from their bees. That's very interesting. In essence, this is the new uh, migrant worker bees <laughs> that are that are so important for our food. So uh, this is something I didn't know. I really didn't know that there literally are people who make their living by transporting their beehives into areas where they're required for pollination. Well, 
this can be as small as a beekeeper putting two or three or four or five hives on the back of a pickup truck and you know and taking them to a neighbor's farm to pollinate his apple trees or it can be you can up to putting putting uh, four or five hundred uh, beehives onto a semi and covering them up with a net and trucking them from uh, as far as it from the east coast to california more more frequently more typically would be from texas or somewhere in the mississippi valley area to california that's fascinating. So if a person shows up with a beehive, obviously they have to be there at the right time for the pollination to occur properly. What kind of a time frame would a would a colony spend in any particular location? I think usually we're talking about three weeks for most crops, and it may be a month or five weeks. It depends on the crop. I mean, some some crops will bloom continually, and the farmers will pick the fruit, and then, and then the, crop, the plant will put out more fruit. You know, it would be a succession. Uh, I'm thinking watermelons and crops like that, but like for almonds, I think it's about a three-week bloom for most of the varieties, and and you have to be there right when it's the time is right, and as soon as they're at three weeks or whatever's over, they have to get the bees out of the orchards so that the farmers can apply uh, pesticide sprays to take care of pests because you can't spray things like that when the honeybees are there to kill them. Well, that's fascinating. So you bring in perhaps even in some cases hundreds of hives and these bees must be very much associated with that specific hive then. Is that right? Oh, yes. They're, um, you know, when we were kids in school, we had all these absolutes we were taught and one of the absolutes I was taught was that all the bees return to the same hive every night but that's not exactly true but most of them do. Hmm. By and large, a bee will go out and do her work and then return to that same hive again and again during the day and at night. So that's that's fascinating. So even if they're moving from location to location, it really is that hive that they're coming back to. They somehow have an awareness of, of, of their home. That's right. And when you, you, know, when you put a, uh, several hundred on a truck and cover them with a net and truck them for a couple of days, there's you know, more mixture than you would you would want, but... But in the end, you set them all down and spread them out in a orchard or wherever, and they soon reorient themselves to where they are and come back to the, to the hive that they belong to. Now, in terms of the whole industry, there are obviously some hives that probably are, are in a spot and have been there for 20 or 30 years, and then there are those that are these, these migrating hives. Any idea of what the mix is there? We don't have a lot of good numbers for beekeepers, but... As time goes on, as I said, there's more people involved in pollination. As you become more involved in pollination, you have to be mobile. Hmm. So they'll they'll have a, a four or six beehives on a a pallet, much like a freight pallet, and pick them up with some sort of forklift and stack them up on a truck. It's just like you see people loading lumber or something at a lumber yard. So you probably have to do that at night when they're in their hives or something it's like that. Best to do it late in the day and if you can, and unload them uh, early in the morning. But it doesn't always work that way with schedules, but that's, that's the best way to do it. Next probably is there are approximately 2,000 commercial beekeepers in the country, You know, people who that's their main revenue for their life, their mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. And I would say out of those, there are probably more than half of them haul their bees around for either for, for honey or pollination. Put honey and pollination together is probably... It's really it's probably a good bit more than half. It's probably two thirds or more. But now some people say they'll they'll have bees like in um, their main area for honey production. Let's say would be like I uh, said Minnesota, mm-hmm. 
and then they may go to Texas in the, in the uh, fall, where it's warmer climate and the bees have a longer uh, season to work. More flowers are bloom longer into the fall, mm-hmm. and then they'll get them ready, and they may ship them from from Texas then out to California to do almonds, and then they may either go back to Texas or may go directly to uh, back to Minnesota then to make honey. Now, is the honey process the uh, the bees making honey all the time, or is there kind of a season for honey making for bees? Well, it's bees usually uh, most most plants or that bees work and make honey off of are springtime plants. Of course, now spring comes later in the year as you go further north, so it's not unusual for a beekeeper to say have in uh, say in uh, Florida make orange blossom honey in the, for this time of year in mm. uh, in March, and then maybe in uh, late May he'll have them in North Florida working various kinds of wildflowers, and then they'll truck them on to the Dakotas, let's say, for for summer uh, as the season progresses north. The source of the honey, like you mentioned, honey, orange blossom honey, right. which has its own unique flavor and character. Orange uh, blossom very much does, yes. Mm-hmm. Then uh, from the time that you open those bees up to pollinating the uh, the orange fields, how long does it take for those bees to produce a crop of honey? And then you have to harvest. What's that time frame there? Usually in, in the orange groves, you're talking about six weeks. Mm-hmm. That you would have them in the orange groves, mm-hmm. and they would produce the honey and mm-hmm cure the honey out and have it where you could harvest it. Mm-hmm. So And then you harvest that honey, and then you move them to another location, and they'll, and they'll produce some other kind of honey. And they just, seem to, they just seem to take to this process of continually having to re- kind of reinvent their lifestyle. Yes. Yeah, very and interesting. When you see, go in a grocery store and you see honey labeled clover or orange blossom or tupelo or whatever, that means a beekeeper has taken that honey away from those, that colony has put, we put, we call it surplus honey. Mm-hmm. The beekeepers put boxes on a, on a hive, and the bees put honey in it, and they take that surplus then away. At the end of that, we call it a honey flow. At the end of the orange blossom honey flow or the end of the clover honey flow. Very interesting. And they keep it separate that way so they can market mm-hmm. um, individual flavors. Well, now, the story that's making the news right now is the fact that beekeepers almost nationally are suddenly noticing that there's a, a, a very serious decline in their populations. Well, it, this really came into to the, our attention in uh, November uh, when one particular beekeeper who moves uh, up and down the East Coast, from Florida to Maine and New York and Pennsylvania, wherever pollination crops or honey crops are, he uh, had some bees that he had moved to Florida. He moves his headquarters, so to speak, his family south in, in, in the winter, too. So they went out to look at some bees, 400 hives, and they started uh, opening them up and looking, and just hive after hive was just empty. Now, I should point out, you hear, I may be mixing them, too. We hear, we say beehives, and we also say colonies. The beehive is the box that beekeepers put the colony in. The colony is the family of bees that might be there. So he opens these different hives up, and there, there are no bees. And, of course, he was sort of dumbstruck by it all. He said he was speechless. And then he began to investigate and found that some other people were having similar situations. It was just a, a developing thing all of a sudden right then. Now, As time has gone on, uh, more beekeepers have found this situation. That I guess the, the kind of thing that's intriguing the public and mystifying beekeepers and the beekeeping scientists is that the bees themselves are gone. They just usually, if you would have, if you had a pesticide kill, let's say, you'd, you'd have all sorts of dead bees out in front of you, out in front of your beehive, like uh, 
you know, like you spray a room and you got roach roach problem, and you spray real heavy and you come in and the roaches, you know, if it's that sort of thing, you follow me? Sure. So, but there's no bees out there, and the bees apparently uh, flew away in uh, some way and didn't return to the to the beehive. Many times there'll be a, just a small number of bees, and the queen will still be there, but uh, you won't have the force of bees you would expect. So the bees are just disappearing. They're they're disappearing into thin air of sorts. More or less, yeah. that's right. Huh. Any, uh, has any, anyone been able to get any kind of handle on what's happening to them? We've had a, a lot of people, particularly led by Penn State University, because some, several Pennsylvania beekeepers were first involved in this. They've taken a lot of samples in, as, as far as uh, the way as California, and now it's a, kind of a laborious process of running the, the samples, so... They're checking for all sorts of things. They're checking for pesticides. They're checking for uh, pathogens. And there are a number of diseases that bees have. And, you know, healthy, even a healthy colony has some diseases you can find in it. And they're sort of in balance, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but they're, anyway, they're looking for all these different things to see if they're, something got out of balance and, and may have wiped out the colony. But, uh, Whereas this, in the past, has had some regional effect, it seems as if this is becoming much more of a national reality. Now, we've had a couple of times in the past where we had a lot of reports of, of bee colonists dying in the, this time of year and earlier in the year. But this is, I think there's more people involved and to a greater extent. I mean, we're, we're talking about people who had 1,000 hives of bees and he had 40 left, I believe, alive. 40 and hives left. 40 out of 1,000. Some and other people, I've heard of several people who had around 10,000 hives of and they've lost maybe 80% of them. Now, is this unique to this specific season, or has this ever happened before to this extent? Well, of course, the, the bees, what, they, they have a life cycle in the colony, and what happens, the queen will be laying the eggs in, you know, for the population of the hive, and then she, she tapers off as it begins to get late in the year, like, well, depending on where you are, but when it becomes close to winter. And then she'll quit, in general, except in places like South Florida. She quits laying eggs all together, so the bees that are in the in the beehive, let's say uh, first of uh, December, in more temperate climates, even like Georgia, those bees have to carry that colony over till springtime, till the queen starts laying again. Mm-hmm. So there's a period there when all you have is adult bees, old bees, so to speak. But they, and they have to have enough longevity to go through until the until the, to start to cycle over again. Well, we have a number of things that have. You know, cause problems with this, generally uh, the most recent things have been some parasitic mites that have been introduced in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they um, they shorten the longevity of bees. So if you have a particularly have a long extended winter and your bees weren't, let's say, in too good a shape going into the winter, then you'll experience more colony mortality than you would have otherwise, than you would expect it. People see this from time to time, and but this year it's just way more than people were expecting. Well, now let's talk about the effect this, this may have literally on our, our food sources in this upcoming year here, because we're heading into spring now, and uh, suddenly this particular year the bee population, particularly the migrant, the bees that are being used for pollinating crops, what what are people talking about in terms of what could happen to uh, food crops? Well, if I were a grower, let's say, of apples or some other crop that blooms early in the year, I would be certainly be in contact with my beekeepers to make sure that that they had enough, you know bees to supply for my pollination needs. But as people go on later in the year, 
uh, let's say watermelons or pumpkins or something like that. Beekeepers will rebuild these these colonies. They have, a, as a matter of routine maintenance of your operation or management of your bees, however you look at it, they beekeepers build a lot of new colonies every spring anyway. Um, so as the time goes on into the year, the numbers of colonies will increase, and beekeepers will recoup their losses and be able to to provide pollination services as well as to make produce honey, but the early crops will uh, will be suffering, both in terms of beekeepers being able to rent out their bees for pollination, as well as as beekeepers being able to produce honey on the early on the early honey crops. In some respects, it's it's good news for the beekeepers because they'll be able to charge more for their bees, but that's <laughs> that's probably not what drives them necessarily. It probably is a, just a really a love affair with with a way of life. Well, this. One beekeeper just told me that there's, you know, there's no way that even, no matter how good the year gets as it goes on, that he's going to be able to, to get out of the red because he's just had so many losses, and the people who have lost so much, so high a percentage, you know, they just won't be able to do that. Short term, I don't think there's a lot. I, I hope there's not going to be a lot of uh, fallout as far as pollination of food crops. Longer term, I think it it will play into just the decisions of how many bee colonies should I run? Should I encourage my children and my grandchildren to become beekeepers? The general feeling that people had for the for the the good life of being a beekeeper, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in the longer term, if we can't really get a handle on this, it'll it'll be uh, you know detrimental to to a lot of aspects of that. Well, for in cases where there haven't been bees to pollinate, uh, there people have tried different things to to artificially pollinate. Talk about some of those. Well, I'm, I'm really I'm not as familiar with those as I should be, but I do know that for different crops, there are there are some uh, uh, sprays that you can spray on them that will uh, cause the, the plants to pollinate themselves. And you can also, uh, some people who grow tomatoes may be familiar with this, you can use like a little paintbrush and transfer uh, pollen from one blossom to another. That's a lot of work. So there's nothing that can do it uh, as efficiently as an insect. And and for most crops, that's honeybees. Now, there are some um, other alternative uh, insect pollinators, and, and different crops use them to different degrees, but they're pretty specific. There's like a blueberry bee, there's a... Uh, blue orchard bee that's uh, they're working with and trying to pollinate almonds. Uh, there's uh, uh, some other solitary bees that pollinate like alfalfa. But if if you're going to go out and you're going you have a piece of land and you're going to grow a crop that needs pollination, there's no other replacement that you can get where you can get immediate supply and to do as good a job as if you rent honeybees from a beekeeper. Well, possibly one of the solutions is for people to start looking into the craft of, of raising and keeping bees in their own neighborhoods and, and in their communities. If people wanted to learn more about how to do that and what's involved, what's the best way for them to find out? Well, right now, this this time of year, there are uh, all over the country, there are people, uh, community colleges and beekeeping clubs, County beekeeping clubs, state beekeeping associations, uh, a whole different a variety of people that are holding uh, bee schools, short courses we call them usually, and they may last a day or it may be five Saturdays in a row or whatever. But there are a lot of opportunities this time of year for people all across the country to learn about beekeeping and 
And it's, it's really an interesting thing to do. I mean, you don't have to have a semi-truck, 10,000 hives of bees. You know, you can just have one or two hives in your backyard. And it's really a, it's really a, a very interesting, um, fascinating hobby. Now, for people, let's say that someone wanted to do that, of course, a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, I don't want all these bees around. What What's life like living with bees in your backyard? Well, I have uh, half a dozen in my backyard. They're about, oh, I guess 200 feet from my back door. They don't bother me. I see them around the water faucet time to time, gathering water, and I see them on the flowers pollinating. But, of course, I grew up with them. That's a different thing. But they don't they don't usually cause a, a problem. It's not a, particularly if you've got any, any size lot at all, you could, Put them on the back of your lot, and you can even uh, there there are recommended practices that you can do so that they don't bother your neighbors or they don't go to your neighbor's swimming pool and things like that. Well, here's the truth of the matter. I personally think that this is a wake-up call and that people might decide that they can watch less TV and possibly watch more more about the bees, learn more about the bees and get involved in something like that. It's probably a, a wonderful way to spend your time and really accomplish something. And right now, it could be essential to help uh, keep our food crops and, and our, our plant life around healthy uh, across the nation. Well, we're, of course, we're... We appreciate the the coverage, the, the articles, and the, the coverage like you're doing, and with uh, people's interest. We've had uh, since this has been in the news, we've had any number of people have called here, just general public. What can we do? And we've had people uh, uh, send emails, and uh, we certainly appreciate the, the concern and the interest that people have. Um, and I think this is, like you said, a wake up call. You're, it very well could be, and it's so. So much nowadays, people think that milk comes from the Safeway and whatever. And you don't; they don't have any. Every generation is further removed from the farm. And I think if people remember more where food does come from, and and really remember also why you can buy things like um, grapes in the middle of the winter. You don't have to wait till grape season in California, or whatever, uh, to recognize that someone around the world is growing them and transporting them here. I think it would be it's a better thing that we know more about all this. Well, I'm doing everything I can to encourage people to relist with nature and the environment because it's the best thing that we could do with our lives. We, need, we, we really need to re- reconnect with the reality as opposed to so much fantasy and other whatever this thing is that we call life these yeah. days. We also, the American Beekeeping Federation, a couple of years ago, organized a, a research and education foundation where people can contribute to it to, uh, to help us fund uh, most of what we've done so far is funding graduate students in beekeeping and funding young people from programs to interest young people in beekeeping. But there are some other things. We have, uh, we're trying to get a website going, and if anyone is interested, they could look into that. It's uh, honeybeepreservation.org, and uh, they could look into that. And there's some, some resources there, and if people are interested, there's ways they could find out more about beekeeping We'd like to help them any way we could. Well, that's great, and I'll put that link on on the show page for uh, this show today. We've been talking with Troy Four. He's the executive director of the American Beekeeping Federation. Their website is www.abfnet.org. Troy, thanks so much for lending your voice here on the Wild Side News. Thank you. It just may be that bees are a hard warning about global warming or mass extinction, or something we may not even yet have words for, kind of like Katrina was a wake-up call. 
But the story of the bees is really just a small part of a much larger truth, that we're witnessing some serious changes in animal well-being and diversity, and we'd best begin right now to listen. So stay tuned as we take a look at the new kind of wake-up call when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. was a dirty look. Shrinking glaciers, a nudge. Then dying coral reefs pushed us, hard. Rising ocean temperatures and extreme weather, an uppercut. Then record-breaking heat waves hit us right where it hurts. Has it occurred to anyone that maybe the Earth is trying to get our attention? We can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. To find out how, go to fightglobalwarming.com. Brought to you by Environmental Defense, the Robertson Foundation, and the Ad Council. 